Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. So Revelation 19 is where we're at. If you would turn there, we will cover the back half of this chapter. We covered the first half two weeks ago. And really the, the chapter kind of changes gears on us midway through. And that's what we want to pick up this morning. But I want to start by saying, most of you all know that I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, my wife is a California girl and I'm a Kentucky boy. And we met in California and married and, and moved here from there. But I grew up in Kentucky, Louisville. And Louisville is known for three things. One is Kentucky Fried Chicken. Louisville's not in the name, but that's where it's from. Uh, KFC is, you can thank Louisville for that. Two is the Louisville Slugger baseball bat that many professional baseball players will use. And if you ever go to Louisville, you can take a tour of the factory and it's worth your time. But the third is the Kentucky Derby. And the, the run for the roses, as they call it, is the annual uh, horse racing event that is kind of the creme de la creme. If you can win the Derby, you are set. There's lots of horse races that take place all over the country, all over the world. There's lots that take place at Churchill Downs in Louisville. But the race to win is what they call the greatest two minutes in sports, is the Kentucky Derby. It is this moment where the best of the best of the best thoroughbreds are loaded into these little stalls and those, those gates open up and all of a sudden, all of this horsepower is, is unleashed, right? And all this power comes exploding out of these stalls to run around that track as fast as they possibly can in a matter of about two minutes, right? And then while they run, there's this little guy about the size of an elf on the back of that horse holding on for dear life, right? That's how it works. And that, I think, is, is a, a good picture or window into what's happening here in Revelation chapter number 19. It is this moment where the gates of heaven or the clouds of heaven open up and all of this unbridled power is unleashed. You actually have Jesus kind of as a jockey in this, in this, uh, in this text. He's riding a white horse and heaven opens up and power is unleashed. And we will see today what Christians have long called the second coming of Jesus. We actually have sung about that already this morning. The choir sang a kind of a rough version of the Apostles' Creed this morning, that we believe in God the Father, and we believe in Jesus Christ, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. And they went on to say, we believe in the crucifixion, we believe in the resurrection, and then we believe that he is coming back again, right? And they sang that, and he's coming back again a couple times, and John even said, I can't wait, kind of in the middle of it. What do we mean he's coming back again? Well, we mean Revelation 19, 11 through the end of the chapter, the back half of Revelation 19. Do you see this in, in grave detail, the second coming of Jesus? Now, one note of clarity before we examine the text is sometimes people get confused because we say there's like two comings, but we kind of refer to three. We will say that in Christmas, in the incarnation, Jesus came to his own, right? God becomes man and he came unto his own and his own received him not. 
We will say that in the second coming that we'll see today, Jesus comes with his own, with an army of angels and saints. And he comes in power and in victory. But we'll oftentimes refer to the rapture of the church as Jesus coming for his own. And we'll say like, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And you can almost get the impression that there's three comings. We call this the second coming because it is the second time that Jesus's feet will physically touch the ground. There is a rapture in the middle, but this is Jesus coming back to earth and his feet touching the ground. And we get to read about it this morning. So let's pick it up. I want you to see in verse 11 that he's coming visibly. Verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And he that saddled him was called faithful and true and in righteousness, he does judge and make war. Now that's interesting because the first half of the chapter reads like this. Verse one, after these things, I heard a great voice. Verse number three, again, they said, alleluia. Verse five, a voice came out of the throne saying, verse six, I heard as it were. Verse nine, he says unto me, then verse number 11, I saw. You go from ears to eyes. You go from hearing, 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 saying, 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 to heaven opens up and now I see something, right? Visible. And the point that I want to make just very briefly is that number one, this is exactly what was predicted in Acts chapter number one, after Jesus raises from the dead, he ascends to heaven. And they're all standing there like, whoa, (laughs) That, that that was amazing. And then show up these angels and the angels say, what are you gawking at? They're like, he just went up into heaven. And they're like, this same Jesus in like manner will come just as he went. He will come again, just as he went up, he's coming down, this is going to happen. And they say there's a second coming, right? And this is predicted to be a physical, visible thing. This, the point is, don't spiritualize this text. And there are people that try to spiritualize the whole book of Revelation, including this, and say, well, this is just like a metaphor for like truth is going to defeat bad ideas. It's more than that. Don't spiritualize the text away and miss the physical reality of what is going to be described when Jesus comes in power and in war and in victory here in this text. So he comes visibly. He also comes victoriously. You see both his nature and his name that all point to the victory that's going to be manifested. So you see his nature. Verse 11, what is his nature? Faithful and true. What do you mean faithful and true? meaning the rider of the white horse is trustworthy, the rider is reliable, the rider is real, the rider is true. He is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And then you see that the rider is not just faithful and true, but he is a judge and a warrior. In righteousness, he does what? He judges and he makes war. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought of Jesus as someone who makes war, but this text tells you that you should. Meaning he holds judicial and military power, which is something that the Old Testament saints and the Jewish people had a firm hold of. They took great stock in God being the Lord of hosts, meaning the Lord of of armies, one who had a a heavenly army, one who was victorious, one who was a warrior king. 
They had a very, very firm grasp on this. As a matter of fact, their grasp on that was so firm that they missed the predictions of the same Messiah being a suffering servant. And many of the people in the first century could not wrap their head around Jesus dying on the cross for their sins because they were so fixated on this Lord of hosts coming to defeat the enemies decisively and to usher in a kingdom. That they were so fixated on that that they thought you're going to beat up Rome and you're going to, to establish your kingdom. And they just skipped right over the cross and the suffering Messiah. But those predictions of, of, of a coming king, of establishing a kingdom of the Lord of hosts are still valid. This here tells you that he comes, how? To judge and to make war. And if you remember this, I know it's been a minute ago, like the second sermon in our series in Revelation, we talked about this. Revelation chapter number one, verse number seven, we got the first prophecy in this book of prophecies. You remember what that first prophecy was? The first prophecy was, I'll read it to you. Behold, he, Jesus, comes with clouds and every eye shall see him and also they which pierced him and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. You say, that sounds scary. Mm, yeah. Depending on which side you're on and whose team you're on, it could be scary. And we said, this is kind of the thesis statement of the book. There's lots of prophecies here, but this is kind of the, the central prophecy of the entire book. And now you get to see all these chapters later, this unfolded in a fuller, grander, more picturesque way that Jesus is coming in victory. And when he judges and when he makes war, he does it, how does it say, righteously, right? And righteousness, he does judge and make war. What he does is in accordance with that which is right. Verse 12 goes on to say this, if you look at it, verse number 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. What is his nature? Eyes of flame of fire. He sees through all, nothing escapes his notice. When he judges, he will not be fooled. You will not pull the wool over his eyes. There will be no deception or fraud that gets the better of him when he judges. His decisions are perfectly aligned, which that was his right. And on his heads are many crowns. You say, how many is many? I don't know, a lot. You say, how does that work? Like, are those like little tiny crowns and there's lots of them? Is that like party hats where they're all stacked one on top of the other? I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but he's crowned with many diadems, the crown of a, what we'll see in a minute, the king of kings and lord of lords. This is a judge and a warrior and a king who is coming. And what you see of his nature is that he is reliable, he is trustworthy, he is true. He's a judge warrior king who acts righteously and he's never deceived. Now, admittedly, this is already a different picture of Jesus than most evangelical Christians have. Because there's three prevailing views of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought through these, but there's three prevailing views of Jesus that Christians have. Baby Jesus, okay? Jesus in a manger, right? Jesus on the cross, being crucified. And then feathered hair, sit on a rock, philosophy and teach softly Jesus. Those are the three. And I am grateful for baby Jesus in the manger. 
And I am grateful that Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. And I am grateful that he came with grace and truth and that he taught with wisdom that was out of this world, literally. I'm grateful for all of those, but Jesus is no longer a baby in a manger and Jesus is no longer hanging on a cross and Jesus is no longer sitting on a rock with feathered hair talking to people. Those are no more. What is now is a Jesus who's full of, of mercy and grace, who would love to save, but what is coming is the second coming. And this is a Jesus who you better wrap your head around, who comes in judgment, who comes to make war. This is not, oh, bless your heart, Jesus. This is, I am fed up and I'm putting an end to this, Jesus. And all of those are true. But this is a clear depiction. And if you're like, I don't know, I don't see it yet. Just hang on a second, you'll see it. This is a Jesus who is coming with, with, a, with an iron rod, with fist balled, ready to make war. And you start to see more of his description in his names, not just his nature, but his names. Look in verse number 12. We already saw he's called faithful and true. But verse number 12, we find that he has a name of mystery. Eyes, flame of fire, head, many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. You say, ooh, what is it? I don't know. No man knows but he himself, okay? And people, it, it drives me batty. People try to speculate. Well, this is the name. It says you don't know, okay? It's not your prerogative to know, which is actually kind of helpful because sometimes we get this idea that when we get to heaven, we'll be omniscient. And we don't, we don't necessarily think of it in those terms, but we kind of we say that. Like, well, you know, we'll just never know this side of heaven. Maybe you'll never know that side of heaven, right? Did that ever cross your mind? I hate to burst your bubble, but you're like, well, you know, why did this happen in the world? Why did this happen to me? I won't know this side of heaven. As if you're going to go to heaven and you're going to walk up to the throne and you say, God, why did this happen? I demand you give me an answer. And God is, is he has to answer you. That's not how it works. He may look at you and say, yeah, no, I'm not telling you. <laughs> like, he may keep that to himself. There are certain things that, that he keeps to himself, such as this name. Like you get to be a citizen of heaven and there is a lot that comes with your citizenship, but there's a security clearance that you, you may not have on some issues. You say, that, that kind of bugs me. I'm sorry if it bugs you, but that's the way it is. The one with the authority gets to determine the level of, of access that you get. And there are certain things that you just, you're not omniscient. You're not gonna be God. You're still going to be a subject in his kingdom and you don't get to know everything, including this. It's a name of mystery. But we also find that there's a, a name of memory. Verse number 13. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Now, a note on the vesture dipped in blood, people like to debate, is that his own blood or someone else's blood? And I don't know that I can say for sure, honestly. Maybe it's his own and it's meant to draw us back to the cross that he crucified for us, then he shed his blood for us. I'm prone to think, and kind of strongly, that it's not his own, but it's others. Like he's gonna make war. You're gonna see that, like it said that, but you're gonna see it depicted in a minute. And war is bloody. And the corresponding predictions of this from the Old Testament, like in Isaiah, actually not just intimate, but they say overtly that it's like the blood of others. 
But there's this road that's dipped in blood. More to come on that in a minute. But his name is called what? Well, faithful and true, yes. A, a name that we can't know, but then also the word of God. Now that's a name of memory because who's writing this book? John is the human author. Did John write any other books of the Bible? Well, yeah, John wrote those epistles, right? First John and second John and third John. They made it really easy on you. To, they just named them after him. And he also wrote that gospel about Jesus called the gospel of John, believe it or not. And how did the gospel of John start? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? How does John refer to Jesus as the word of God? And he depicts this Jesus who is, he was with God and he was God. Was he with God or was God? Both. Like one in essence, but separate in persons. And he tells you now in Revelation 19, here's the word of God. Here's this one who's called that. Who is that? That's Jesus. And he's coming in power. He's coming in glory. You see in verse number uh, 14, 15, and 16 that there's this name of majesty. Verse 14, the armies which were with, which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, if you're anything like me, my brain just likes to ask the text questions. And when I, when I read that verse, my brain just explodes with questions. Like, why are the warriors, like the army people, right? The Lord's army. Why are they dressed like priests? Like, shouldn't they have armor? Like linen doesn't normally cut it when you're going into battle. Like that's not the garb of war, right? And why are their garments all white, but his are all bloody? And why do they get to, to ride white horses? Because traditionally, the, like, the potentate, the king, the emperor, the one that was the, the, the stuff, they rode the white horse as a symbol of victory. But the, those that were just in the army, you didn't get a white horse. That wasn't for you. So this, this whole verse is riddled with questions, but they all make sense when you understand the gospel. Like it is seeming to indicate that there is a war that is going to take place and there is the word of God, there's a King Jesus who's going to get his hands dirty and who will be bloody and who will win the victory, but there will be his followers who really don't do anything that win the victory. Like they say all nice and clean and white in their white linen, but they get to share in the victory. They get, to, they get to ride the horses. And that's like the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus would win the victory for us, but we get to share in it. And he just divvies it out to us, even though it was none of our effort, right? And even in this instance, this is what is, is taking place is he is coming in unbridled power and he will win the day, but we will basically be bystanders who just say, well, he made light work of that, you know? He's not a general on a, on a hill, on his steed, looking through binoculars, like get the job done, guys, go get him. No, 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 he is, he is there. He's at the front. He wins the day. And we're like, we got nothing left to do. He did it all but he allows us to share in it. And verse 15 tells us this. It says, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. The indication is that his words will cut them down. That he can, he can speak it and it's done. He can speak worlds into existence. If you read John 1 and Genesis 1, he can create us, but he can annihilate with the same words. 
it says in the middle of the verse that he shall rule with a rod of iron that's not soft, that's not, that's not lacy. Okay, this, this is power, this is authority. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. The cup of God's wrath comes from what he's doing. Now just stop for a minute. I'll get to the name of majesty in just a moment. But stop for a minute. What is this depicting? It's very clear. This is depicting a stern, militant, rod of iron, cut the enemies down, blood on my clothes, Jesus. He said, I don't like that. Well, you may like it a little more if you weren't so comfortable, perhaps. I understand that, that most of American Christians don't love this view of Jesus, but it is Jesus nevertheless. And I would argue strongly that if you weren't so comfy, you would want and crave this view of Jesus more. If you didn't sit in an air-conditioned room and go to your air-conditioned car to drive home to your middle-class neighborhood in your air-conditioned home where you lock the door behind you and sit on the back deck and then at night you turn on your Simply Safe and you pillow your head on your my pillow and you go, to, you go to bed nice and comfy and sound? Like if something happened tomorrow where like someone just did you wrong, I don't mean a little bit, I mean a lot of it. They did you wrong and they got away with it. No judge, no cop, no in-laws ever held them accountable. They just got away with it. You know what you would start to have a, a little bit of an itch for? A Jesus who would make all the wrongs right. A Jesus who would judge. A Jesus that you could say, I, I can't figure this one out and I, I'm getting beat up and they're getting their pound of flesh, they're getting their 10 pounds of flesh out of me and I can do nothing about it. What do you do then? You need this, Jesus. To keep going, to survive, you need this. And just think about the world. Like you think about history. You think about where we live today. You want this Jesus more than you, more than you let on. What Jesus do you want for Hitler? Feathered hair sit on a rock? Not me. I want this Jesus. What Jesus do you want for the people who literally a few months ago murder one of our missionaries? One of our missionaries who we've supported for years was on the streets of Baghdad. He's a missionary in the Middle East. His wife was with him. And some Muslim extremists boxed him in, took their guns, put it in the car, and pulled the trigger as many times as they could. His wife is still with us, but Stephen is gone. You want baby in a manger, Jesus, for that one? I'm so, maybe, maybe I'm a bad guy. Maybe I'm mean. Maybe I'm violent. I don't know. I tend to think, though, I want this Jesus. I want this Jesus for the, for the witch doctors in Africa who castrate boys for the fun of it as part of their religion. Like, I want someone who will judge that stuff. Someone who will take the evil and say, it is done and it is over and the genocide and the homicide and all the hatred and all the evil is done away with and we are, we are putting an end to this, right? And this is what is happening. This is Jesus saying, I'm fed 
up and I am coming and I am coming in righteousness. I'm going to judge. I'm going to have a rod of iron. I'm going to make war. This is going to be bloody. This is not going to be pretty. And verse 16 tells you his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Read it with me. He has, he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, which side note, his name being written on his thigh is not meant to be a verse on the morality of tattoos or not, right? People are like, he has a tattoo on his thigh. It's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If, you, if that's what you get from this verse, you're missing the forest for the trees, okay? It's meant to be a verse of majesty that says, here's his name. And I love how they translated it in the King James, all caps. I wish they'd go size 60 font on it. It'd just be awesome if one spot in the Bible had larger font. King of kings and Lord of lords, right? That's his name. Who is he? He's faithful. He's true. He's a warrior. He's a judge. He's a king of kings. He's a Lord of lords. He's the word of God. That's who is riding the white horse. That's who's coming. This is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ the one who comes to make war. Now I must note, I, I could do a whole sermon on this. I'd love to one day, but not today. I'll give you the, the teaser, the trailer for it. If you trace back references to Jesus or God being King of Kings or Lord of Lords, you can see allusions to that all through the Bible, even in the Old Testament. And oftentimes they will take that title and they will spell out what the implication of it is. And it's really mesmerizing to study it. So for example, in Deuteronomy, they talk about the Lord of Lords. And the implication they say is, that means God's no respecter of persons. If he is, I'll put it in a theological way and in a bottom shelf way. Theologically, if he is ontologically superior, he's a being of a different order, okay? Bottom shelf, he's the top dog. He is above everyone. If that is the case, and he's Lord of Lords, then what do you have to impress him? What are you gonna do to get him, to give you a little wink and a nod, and to be like, oh, I'm taking notice of you, man. Well done. Like, what are you gonna do? How are you gonna flex to God? Look at my small business I built. It's fantastic. You know, it's going really well. And I've worked myself out of it. Now I'm just, the employees do all the work and I just make all the money. You think God's gonna like be impressed by that? He's going to be impressed with how well you've organized your garage. He's going to be impressed that your house is bigger or your car is nicer. Not a chance. He's king of kings and lord of lords. There's nothing you can do to make him be like, wow, you're impressive. He doesn't do that. So, and because he doesn't do that, you can know that there's continuity in his judgment and his judgment isn't jaded by your power or what you have on earth, because we, we get that all wrong, don't we, as humans? We mess it up all the time and we give deferential treatment because they dress nicer, they had more money, or sometimes it's the opposite. There's preferential treatment because you have less money or whatever. God doesn't do that. Why? Because he's king of kings and lord of lords. Daniel makes it clear that the implication of a king of kings is that he actually is in control not just in the future, but today of all of the kings and all of the little lords. That God rules in the kingdom of men, right? It's like reverse Wizard of Oz. Remember Wizard of Oz where there was this, this big wizard who was calling all the shots and then you peek behind the curtain. It was just a little man pushing buttons and pulling levers, right? 
And the Bible says, no, 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 reverse that. He's king of kings. That means there's not a little man behind the scenes pushing buttons and pulling levers. There is a God of gods. There is, there is a, an omnipotent one who rules in the kingdom of men and controls it all. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. And he's coming. How? To judge, to make war. And here's what it says. Like it or lump it. Verse 17 to the end of the chapter. He comes visibly, he comes victoriously, and he comes vengefully. He comes to execute vengeance. You say, vengeance? Should that be a comfort to me? Yeah, it depends. Vengeance in your hands? No. Vengeance in his hands? Yes. And that's a very biblical idea. Right? Romans will tell us that we, as the beloved of God, we don't avenge ourselves. We let go of the wrath. And what does it tell us? How can we do that? For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. That when some, someone does you wrong, you can say, I'm taking this little case that I built against you. In my head, or even maybe literally on paper. And you say, you know what? I'm submitting that case to a higher court. I'm submitting that case to a bigger judge. And I will let him be the judge, jury, and executioner. I will give it to him and vengeance will be his. And then he will measure it out righteously. And here he is coming in that moment in vengeance. Verse number 17. You're going to see through this, the birds, the beast, and then the battle. Here are the birds, verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun, meaning he was trying to be seen, okay? He wants to be conspicuous. He's standing in the sun and he cries with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly uh, in the midst of heaven, come, gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. What kind of supper? That ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and then that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, small and great, meaning there's going to be a lot of war and a lot of bloodshed and a lot of people are losing their life. This is gonna, this is gonna be decisive, this is going to be the end and there's going to be a feast. You say, that, that sounds gory. Yeah, I, I know. In many ways it is. But they're calling the birds. Calling the birds, yes. This is a harbinger of the devastation that will reign. And that devastation that reigns is meant to be indicative of the power that is there in the Lord Jesus Christ. That devastation accentuates how strong and mighty the Lord of hosts is. Verse 18, it gives you all these groups, small and great, all of mankind. There's, there's, it's not like, uh, not the generals, but those that are the infantry. No, 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 everybody. Verse 19 and 20, you see the beast. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. Now I can't recap all of this, but we've seen from chapter 13 on, we've seen the beast. We've seen his little buddy, the false prophet. We have seen the 10 kings that he assembles. We've seen this play out throughout these chapters that this antichrist, this one who has the devil as his daddy, this one who is controlled in an evil way, who wants people to take the mark of the beast and tries to kill the nation of Israel and tries to kill the Christians and is, and is committing genocide in so many ways. That this one and the kings and their armies, they gather together to make war against him that sits on the horse. Now you tell me, not a rhetorical question, tell me, who is the one that sits on the horse? Ready, set, Jesus. Jesus, who is God? Thank you, Sue. 
So make no mistake about it. These people are anti-Jesus. These people are on the other team, right? And they're making war. Here we go. Makes war with him that sit on the horse and against his army. Verse 20, the beast was taken and with him the false prophet. Remember that false prophet that wrought miracles before him with, with which he deceived them and received the mark of the beast and then that worshiped his image. Once again, that's alluding back to previous stuff in Revelation. These two personages are taken, not killed, but taken. And what happens to them? They were both cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. They meet their end. Now, this is the first time, and we will see as we move through the back of Revelation, this come up a few times. This is the first time the lake of fire is mentioned. So more to come later. But for now, let's just try to be a little bit clear. There is a distinction between hell and the lake of fire. So there is a place called hell within the realm of the dead that you do not want to go to, but that is temporary. One day, death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire, which is permanent. If you want to think jail versus prison, that's fine. There are people that are arrested, perhaps even convicted, but not yet sentenced. And there will be a day of sentencing that we will see in the back of Revelation. Everyone will stand before God. That's coming. And then where you spend eternity will, will be determined, so to speak. But this is a day of sentencing for these two. And best I can tell within the Bible, these are the first two personages to enter the lake of fire. There's no one else there except them in this moment. That they meet their end and they are sentenced and they are done. They are cast into the lake of fire to be done away with forever. You say, all oh, that's scary. Well, I'm not trying to scare you, but... If you, I'd rather you be scared out of hell than me tickle your ears and you just go through life comfortable. It is what it is. It says what it says. Here are the birds being summoned, this harbinger of the death that's going to come. Here is Jesus coming. And it is amazing. You read about the, the beast, but then you read about the battle. And the battle, like you would, this is all building for chapters and chapters. Here comes the battle in one verse. It's all you get. The remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which the sword proceeds out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. You say, that sounds kind of anticlimactic. No, the opposite. This is like done. This is not some long saga that takes over 18 seasons of a TV show, right? This is not battle after battle after battle. This is done. This is like the opposite of what you see of evil if you're a scary movie fan, which I'm personally not at all. But if you are, you know how this goes. Someone is evil, right? They're like some mass murderer or they're uh, possessed by a demon or something and their head's spinning. And here comes like the priest with holy water or something. And you know how that movie goes, right? There's only two things that happen in that movie. Either A, the priest dies and they're like, holy water, whatever. And they just kill him. Or B, they beat him up real bad and he leaves with his tail tucked between his legs. And like, it's, it's, this, it's this struggle, but it never goes well for the good guy, right? You don't get that picture at all when you read this. What you get the picture of is the gates of heaven opened and unbridled power coming and rod of iron and judgment and justice 
and Jesus just saying, it's done, I'm fed up. We're doing away with this. You are against me and against me and against me. There's been all these judgments and all these plagues and all these trials. And there's been opportunity after opportunity for you to turn and you dig in your heels and you dig in your heels and, and you keep going and you keep killing my people and I am done. And he comes decisively in power and in victory. You get a picture from this text that the sovereignty and the power of Jesus is unassailable. Like that there's no contest that this is night and day and he is king of kings and Lord of lords, which has a lot of comfort for God's people. If you read the text and say that's scary and that's gory, yes, but there's a lot of comfort. There's an old, old, old church saying that is fear not tomorrow for tomorrow is already one that is derived from this. Like if we know that he has the victory and we know that he has the power, then you don't have to go through life scared. You can trust in him, you can lean on him. And here are, I'm gonna give you in closing quickly four implications for the second coming of Jesus. If this is true, and it is, what do you do? What do I do? Here's what you do. Number one, you learn of his coming. We saw in this same chapter, verse number 10, the phrase, the revelation of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Meaning, the essence of prophecy is Jesus. Like all of this prophetic stuff is all about Jesus. We even saw that at the beginning of Revelation, verse one, chapter one, right? The revelation of Jesus, the revealing of Jesus. This is all meant for you to learn so that you can see Jesus in a grander, fuller, more accurate way. And you need that as a Christian, you need to learn, you need to read, you need to understand what it says so that you can see not just, as I mentioned, baby Jesus or crucified Jesus or teaching Jesus, but that you can understand who Jesus is and that you can learn about his coming. But when you learn about his coming, what do you start to do? Or what should you do? You look for his coming. We're told this all through the Bible. Revelation will tell you over and over and over. When the world starts to wind down, you don't spend your time looking for things to happen. You look for someone to come. You keep your eyes on him and you look to him. You look for him. You have your eyes on a person, not an event. And then if you look for that, you will begin to long for that. I mentioned this probably, I don't know, week three or week four through Revelation. It's been months and months ago, so it's worth repeating. But if you have a airplane that is coming into an airport, there's a pilot flying. There are multiple people receiving that plane. You have an air traffic controller in the tower who has like screens and charts and, and graphs and all this stuff, who's communicating with the pilot and wants the pilot to land safely right? It's his job. He needs to understand who the pilot is and where they're coming from and when they're going to land and he needs to have some knowledge. He needs to look for that pilot to come and want them to land safely. But then if you have the pilot's wife who's down in the terminal and she hasn't seen her husband for three months because it's been real busy and he's been flying and flying and flying and she hasn't seen him, that same wife needs to understand when he's coming and needs to look and, and I want him to come. But that wife is longing for that pilot to be down on the ground in a way that the air traffic controller is not. They both need to know that he's coming. They both need to look to his coming. 
but they need, you need to long, right? And the point of revelation is not for you to bust out all of your charts and graphs and have a bunch of, of knowledge and go hold a seminar somewhere on here's the day Jesus is coming back and this is the name that is written that no one else knows and for you to have your secret knowledge. The point is for you to long for Jesus to come. The point is to spin up desires in you of like, yeah, I do want evil to be done away with. I do want righteousness to prevail. I do want to be on the winning team. It's to, it's to put that desire and that fire inside of you. You want me to give you revelation in a 60-second nutshell? No one said yes, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> you say, you could put this in 60 seconds, and you've been teaching through this for like how many weeks now? Like 25 weeks? Kind of. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus. It is a revealing of Jesus. You got to know that. Okay? That's, that's the first part of the bookend. The next part of the bookend, last chapter, next to last verse. Revelation 22, verse 20. He which testifies these things says, surely I come quickly. Amen. I agree. Even so, come Lord Jesus. You want Revelation in a nutshell? It reveals Jesus. Come on, Jesus. That's it. Here's Jesus. Let's reveal him. Come on, Jesus. That is the heart of the book. It's meant to help you look to and long for Jesus. But then lastly, you live for his coming. You don't just learn. You don't just look. You don't just long. But you live for it. I will give you the words of Jesus himself when he taught his disciples in Luke. He gave them a story. And the story kind of fits for today. He said, there's this master who's in charge of everything. And he leaves. And he gives those that are under his authority the, the tools and the resources that they need to do their job. And he's going to come back again. And the master tells the servants four words. Occupy till I come. I'm leaving. I'm going to resource you with what you need. And I'm going to come back. But until I get back, Keep working. Live for me. Do not go sit in the hammock and drink lemonade. I've given you what you need. You have a job to do. So keep on keeping on. Keep working, right? And while we look forward to and we long for, and I, I dare say you will even begin to long more and more for his coming because as we look at chapter 20 and 21 and 22, when you see what his coming ushers in, your heart is going to explode. And you're going to say, I want that. Bring it on. But until that day, what do you do? You just sit there and you write little love notes and you just wait and wait and wait and wait. No, you occupy till I come. You work, you do your job. You evangelize. You build people up. You disciple. You be the church. You sing his praises. You work, right? You stay faithful. I was thinking this, uh, this week about our church and we are, I don't know if you knew this, most of you probably did not, but we're about to celebrate uh, our 40th birthday as a church. That's coming up in August. We were talking in staff meeting this last week of how do we want to celebrate our 40th birthday as a church? What do we need to do for that day? And I'm not sure exactly what we're going to do, but we have a few little ideas to make it fun and special. But I was thinking about the difference between a church that is thriving and growing and there's life 
and churches that are dying on the vine. I'm like, what's the difference? They both have sermons. They both sing. They both have a building. What's the difference? The, one of the differences, I, it's the, I'm not, I don't want to be oversimpl- I don't want to oversimplify this, excuse me. One of the main differences is churches that thrive have people that understand we occupy till he comes. We stay faithful. We keep working. We don't put in our 20 years and then do nothing. That's not how it works. It's not, well, I've been at Harvest for 30 years, so now I'm just going to be put out the pasture. I'm just going to sit around on my hands and do no, 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 no. Churches are built by people being faithful and, and staying in the pocket. And saying, I want to occupy till he comes. And I was reflecting on those of you, and I'm looking around, I'm seeing faces right now. I don't want to name names, but I was thinking about those of you that were at like the, the storefront days, like the early days of being a, a charter member. I was thinking about some of you that came at the little white church. Some of you came at the, at the campuses before this one with Pastor Skelly was here for 20 years. Some of you came here. You've been, this is your building, the only one you've ever known. I'm one of those. Been here eight and a half years, and this is the only campus that, that I've known. I was reflecting on the people who have said, we have, a, we have a King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we believe, we believe that he was crucified. We believe that he rose. We believe that he's coming again. But until then, until then, God help us. We're going to roll up our sleeves. Yeah, we may be tired, but we're not going to be weary and well-doing. Because in due season, we'll reap if we faint not, right? We're going to keep on keeping on. We're going to stay faithful. We're going to occupy till he comes. Live for his coming.